It's Midday Magazine for Tuesday, September 12th. I'm Hannah Floor. A six-year legal battle involving the Petersburg Medical Center came to an end in a civil superior court earlier this month. The 12-person jury found the hospital was not at fault for a $5 million medical malpractice suit filed by Paige Parrish. Parrish received treatment for an umbilical hernia at PMC in 2015. He alleged that the hospital staff recklessly failed to evaluate and treat complications from the surgery. His suit claims the resulting mesh infection caused him a great deal of physical, mental, and emotional suffering, as well as permanent disfigurement. The hospital, through its attorneys, Chester Gilmore and Samuel Gottstein, insisted that the attending staff acted appropriately and met the required standards of care. The defense also claimed Parrish ignored medical counsel, which aggravated the injury. The suit went before a jury in Petersburg in mid-August, with Judge Catherine Lybrand presiding. At the end of the two-week trial, the judge found that Petersburg Medical Center is innocent of negligence. PMC CEO Phil Hofstetter says he's grateful for the jury's thorough consideration of the evidence. I feel appreciative of the process. I'm appreciative of the jury decision that occurred. I know it's a, a really long, uh, invested process to undergo through something like that. So I'm very, I'm very appreciative that the jury saw uh, the case the way we did. I just feel very strongly that PMC has a high standard of care, and uh, this case does capture many elements of that. As of yesterday, PMC filed for attorney's fees and costs, which would be taxed against the plaintiff. Parrish and his attorney, Mark Choate, did not respond to requests for comment. Petersburg's school board will meet at 6 p.m. tonight for the first time since classes started in late August. The board will look at a request from the school district to update the school calendar. The change would add an in-service day on Friday, September 29th for the middle and high school. That date is already an in-service day for the elementary school. District staff hope to use the day for restorative practices training. Restorative practices is an education theory that centers on de-escalating conflict and finding agreement instead of relying on punishment. Middle and high school staff have already received some restorative practices training this, this spring. The school board will also look at a change in curriculum review. Each year, a district committee reviews the curriculum of a different subject. This year, social studies was scheduled. But the state of Alaska is reviewing the social studies standards at the moment, and they won't be done before the district's curriculum review. The district wants to, wants to swap a review of social studies with next year's scheduled review of career and technical education and fine arts. The district's administrative assistant, Mara Lutomsky, says she doesn't expect the swap to have any noticeable impact. Petersburg School Board will meet this evening at 6 p.m. in the middle and high school library. KFSK will broadcast that live and will post the recording on our website, kfsk.org. And coming up after Midday Magazine today, we will have Campus Connection. That's a live call-in show at 1230 with school officials. And you can call in at 907-772-3808 to participate in that. The federal government is looking for input from the public on proposed changes to how fisheries are managed in the Gulf of Alaska and the Bering Sea. The new rules would dramatically affect the amount of allowable salmon bycatch landed by the trawl fleet, for example, and also require managers to consider climate change, social equity, and environmental justice when setting harvest rates beyond state waters. 
Linda Benkin is a Sitka-based fisheries advocate who's helped spearhead the effort to update the national standards used by the National Marine Fisheries Service to guide management decisions. Robert Woolsey met with Benkin to learn more about the issue and the upcoming public comment deadline. Where is this coming from? Because it seems like for Alaskans and people involved in Alaska's fisheries, people concerned about the welfare of Alaska's fishing communities and our indigenous communities that depend on subsistence resources, this whole idea of uh, beginning to factor in climate change and social equity and environmental justice. EEJ. EEJ. And most of all, bycatch into revised rulemaking for the federal fisheries just seems like it could not be more timely. Yeah, it's hugely timely. You know, where it came from is growing frustration over the last three to five years with the fishery management decisions and how they were affecting our communities and affecting our fish stocks. And we started asking NOAA to consider these revisions to the guidelines two years ago, really pushing on this administration to recognize the inequities and also that we were we were undermining rather than building resilience into the system through how we were managing fisheries and that we didn't see a way for Magnuson Act, which is the organic act for federal fisheries, to be amended uh, or reauthorized anytime soon where those kind of changes could also have been made. But the guidelines are a the interpretations of the standards and sort of the directions to the decision makers. And those can be revised and updated by NOAA unilaterally without waiting for Congress to act. So we saw it as an opportunity to make these changes and we started asking them to open this process. And we're thrilled that they've opened that door. Who is we? Is Alaska spearheading this effort? Because it's whatever happens here happens across the entire Nation. Yes, yes. And there there is now support from other parts of the country, but Alaska definitely spearheaded. So there are a total of 10 national standards under the Magnuson-Stevens Act, but you're focused on only three, standards 4, 8, and 9. And right now, it's not about how to change them, but if. Yeah, revisions to the guidelines. And the question is, should they revise the, the guidelines to national standards 4, 8, and 9? Um, and if they should, how should they how should they do it? You've been pushing NOAA, and when I say you, I guess I'm referring to a coalition of organizations who are involved in advocacy. Spirit. Yes, the Alaska Fishing Community Coalition, which is a group of communities, fishing organizations, tribes, um, environmental groups to some degree that are involved as well, but that have recognized the problems we're up against here and called for the revisions. And so right now, Noah wants to know from us, from the public, hey, is this a good idea? Should we be revisiting these three national standards concerned with climate equity and environmental justice and bycatch? Yeah, Um, sort of allocation and how that is affected by climate equity, you know, or how that also then in terms affects equity um, and opportunities. And then National Standard 8 is addresses providing for the sustained participation by fishery-dependent communities. And National Standard 9 is minimizing bycatch to the extent practicable. Let's talk about the word practicable for a moment because it appears a couple of times in these standards. And I guess Magnuson-Stevens, when it was written, like any major law, it involves a lot of compromise, a lot of uh, massaging language and the whole idea around bycatch was to that the the commercial fisheries were 
we're supposed to reduce bycatch as much as practicable. Um, practicable is a little too vague to be realistic anymore, right? Yeah, it leaves a lot of room for interpretation, doesn't it? And Yeah, so National Standards 8 and 9 were added in the 90s, and some of it was because our our senator at the time raised these issues of bycatch and how much fish was being taken as bycatch and recognizing that it's hard to go fishing and only catch your target, that, that probably every fishery has some level of bycatch, but there are bycatch levels that are unacceptable and start to have huge impacts on directed fisheries, on fishing communities, on other commercial fisheries, sport or subsistence. We really went through this as well in defining what was practicable on for halibut bycatch in the Bering Sea when we saw the community of St. Paul one year looking at not even having a directed fishery right off their coast of people who live out in the Bering Sea while bycatch was taken in trawl fisheries that they could see from their shore. Linda Bankin is the executive director of the Alaska Line Line Fishermen's Association in Sitka. She spoke with Robert Woolsey. The public comment period on whether new rules are needed in the federal fishery closes today. A church in Juneau has run the city's emergency cold weather shelter for the last two years. This year, the church's congregation voted against running the shelter again this winter. Now, as city leaders negotiate with the church, they're considering an alternative, a city bus. Katie Anastas reports. Last winter, Resurrection Lutheran Church was prepared to serve about 45 to 50 people at its warming shelter each night. They often served more. One night, 70 people slept at the church. Pastor Karen Perkins says they need more financial support from the city to run the warming shelter this winter. Last year, because of this huge swell in population, we couldn't keep up under the figures of the contract. Last year's contract gave the church $200,000. It was enough to pay for a part-time manager and bookkeeper in the daytime and two full-time staff members at night. But when more people sought services there than expected, they needed another staffer. There were there were some times where it became uh, really difficult to manage, and if we didn't put a third person on then it became unsafe. Recently, the church's congregation narrowly voted against applying to run the warming shelter this winter. Perkins says some members were concerned about the loitering, vandalism, and other property damage that happened last year. She says those things are less likely when the numbers are managed better. She'd like this year's contract to fund a third staffer a few days a week from the start and make the manager position full-time. It would bring the total to around two hundred and ninety thousand dollars. She says we want to we want to have a, a a number that's realistic this year. Perkins is still waiting to hear whether the city will provide that much money. As city leaders continue to negotiate with the church, they're considering an alternative: a capital transit bus. Deputy City Manager Robert Barr shared the idea at a Juno Assembly meeting last week. There are a handful of communities that. Um, if worse comes to worse, we'll uh, use a public transit bus, uh, keep it idling overnight, uh, keep the heater on, uh, and allow people who uh, have been unable to get into another shelter around town for whatever reason uh, to uh, stay warm. The decommissioned bus would have seats for only 35 people and no beds. Barr says he thinks using a bus as a warming shelter 
would lead people to seek out other options. The best option is the last-ditch option. It's not the one that we want to choose. But I think if that's what was available, that we would see more um, more people choosing to make use of, of other sheltering space that's available that would be better um, than, than this one. But other sheltering space is limited. Maria Lovashek is the executive director of the Glory Hall, Juno's emergency shelter and soup kitchen. She says the shelter's 55 beds are already full. You know, like, I don't remember, unfortunately, like the last time when we were not completely full. Glory Hall staff try to move people from the emergency shelter into other housing as soon as they can. But the Glory Hall's permanent supportive housing units are also full. They're working on adding 28 more units and building others downtown, but they won't be done by winter. And we are working really hard right now with our um, community partners to make sure that everyone in our shelter currently who has any other location to go that is better, be it permanent supportive housing, uh, be it transitional housing, uh, gets there before the winter comes, so we have as much space as possible open. In the meantime, Perkins hopes a revised contract will allow the church to staff the warming shelter safely. If the church reaches an agreement with the city, she plans to bring it back to the congregation for another vote. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. An arson fire set early Sunday morning consumed the American Legion post in Kajikan. The suspect, 28-year-old Joseph Shacker Jr., was arrested Sunday afternoon and charged with first-degree arson and reckless endangerment. According to a statement from Ketchikan Police Department Chief Jeff Walls, the fire at the Joseph T. Craig American Legion Post 3 was first reported at about 1.20 a.m. Sunday morning. The Ketchikan Fire Department, along with the North and South Tongas Fire Departments, responded to the blaze, which took about five hours to contain. A section of Park Avenue, where the American Legion Post is located, was closed to both vehicle and pedestrian traffic while the investigation continued through yesterday. Investigators are working with the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Shacker Jr. made his first court appearance on the charges yesterday afternoon in Ketchikan, Ketchikan District Court, before Judge Catherine Librand. Public defender Sam Tereff said he had not met with Shacker Jr. yet, but pleaded not guilty on his behalf to the reckless endangerment charge. Tereff did not enter a plea for the felony arson charge, saying he wished to meet with his client first. A preliminary hearing on the felony charge is set for 4 p.m. on September 21st. Bail for the felony charge was set at $100,000. The judge also required a $50,000 appearance bond and that Shacker Jr. have pre-trial supervision. Conditions of release include not going within 100 feet of the American Legion property, electronic monitoring, a third-party custodian, and mental health assessment. Shacker Jr. is currently being held at the Ketchikan Correctional Center. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Flores.